EM Guidewire, hard-hitting emergency medicine from Carolina's Medical Center. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Intern Nuggets with Drs. Folk and Durba. Today, we'll tackle an approach to the complex patient, as well as cover feedback and burnout. We've got a ways to go, so let's go ahead and get started. This is Sophia Durba, PGY1. And this is Destiny Folk, PGY1. We are going to start this episode of Intern Nuggets with a few quick clinical tips, continuing with our PEDS theme from last month, and then we'll spend the rest of the episode talking about two important personal skills for interns and residents of all levels, giving and receiving feedback and preventing burnout. Our goal with both personal skills topics is to provide brief, specific, tangible tips for each. Let's start with some tips on seeing pediatric patients with a complex medical history. I just finished my inpatient peds month, and I remember the apprehension I felt when I read the one-liner from the H&P for each new patient for the day while pre-rounding, and four of those patients would have a history that sounded something like this. History of cerebral palsy with chronic respiratory failure, on trach, now off-vent, history VSD, status post-repair, history of prematurity with short gut, status post-ileostomy, status post-GJ placement on continuous feeds with Hickman CVL on 22 hours, TPN over 24 hours, admitted for dehydration. When I see those patients in the ED, I feel like I don't know where to start and like I need to do a 30-minute chart review before I can even go see the patient. We obviously don't have time to read every visit note from the last seven specialists, and I don't have an hour in the room to go over every medical diagnosis and procedure the patient has ever had. How do I approach these patients in the ED, Dr. Derva? Complex kids still often have common things like UTIs, pneumonia, the super rare diagnosis of RSV bronchiolitis, (laughs) or dehydration from a viral gastroenteritis. They're often at risk of becoming more sick because of their medical history or have a higher risk of getting sick in the first place. For example, with a UTI for a patient with vesicoureteral reflux status post-repair. But you can still approach these kids in a similar way that you approach a patient with no past medical history. Do look at a previous PCP note, specialist note, or discharge summary if they've recently been admitted because just the first few lines of the hospital course or assessment and plan can give you a pretty good idea of most of the medical history. When I see a pediatric patient, I let the parents or caregivers take one to two minutes to tell me their story of what is going on, and then I ask about how the patient is eating or drinking, if they're urinating and making stool, and if their energy level or activity is different from baseline. Where do I start for a patient with a history like the one you just described? You can take the same approach in complex patients and ask questions like, what are all of the ways your child gets nutrition? Is it mostly TPN, mostly G-tube or GJ-tube feeds, and do they take anything by mouth at all? And how are they doing with all of this compared to their baseline? Are they now having vomiting and becoming increasingly irritable with each G-tube feed, so their G-tube feeds have been reduced? Did the TPN become unhooked for two hours last night, and maybe that led to hypoglycemia? Oh, so I can use the same approach for output. How much urine do they usually make? How many wet diapers per 24 hours? Do they make stool, or do they only have ostomy output? And what is the appearance and amount of their ostomy output compared to normal? If a parent indicates that any of these is abnormal, you can ask follow-up questions like whether they have a bowel regimen at home and if there have been any changes to this regimen. Maybe that's causing the decreased ostomy output because they have constipation. Or if they recently switched to a different GJ tube feed formula and they're not tolerating it very well. Always consider infection in these patients because an indwelling line is always a potential source of infection and these patients are often immunocompromised. Overall, take a similar approach to the history you'd get from a patient with no past medical history. Ask about ins and outs, activity level, and any fevers or low temps at home, and the answers to those questions will help guide the rest of your history and physical exam. I'll be sure to apply those tips to my next complex patient. Now, let's transition and talk about our personal development topics, feedback, and preventing burnout. 
I had the opportunity to attend the ASAP Cord Resident Teaching Fellowship in Fort Worth a few weeks ago. This conference focused on teaching tips and personal development, and I highly recommend that residents of all levels consider attending this conference next year if you are at all interested in academics. First, I'd like to share some knowledge I gained from this conference on giving and receiving feedback. As interns, we'll be receiving a tremendous amount of feedback and we'll also be giving feedback as we progress through our residency. So this is an important topic to discuss. Let's talk about giving feedback to others first. Anytime we give feedback, we must be sure that we're in a psychologically safe environment. Your demeanor and tone should be welcoming and non-judgmental. Dr. Christina Shenvey, a phenomenal educator at UNC, shared a helpful way to start these conversations. She often starts by saying, I'm giving you this feedback because I have very high expectations and I know you can meet them. Research shows that this phrase actually increases effort and improves learner performance. Ideally, feedback should be in the very moment that you see an opportunity. For example, if you're helping a medical student with a lack repair, you can provide real-time feedback on their suture choice, procedural setup, knot tying, and ability to communicate post-wound care with these patients. However, do be careful providing real-time feedback if you haven't created a psychologically safe environment. The last thing you want to do is humiliate a medical student in front of a group and break the trust that you've established with them. Lastly, make your feedback specific and actionable. Avoid meaningless or unactionable phrases such as good job or read more or strong work. For example, if you're helping your medical student with a lack repair, you might say, on your next stitch, angle your needle at 90 degrees before going through the skin to place the next stitch. Those are great tips on giving feedback. In summary, we must create a psychologically safe environment, be specific, timely, and provide feedback that can be acted on to lead to performance improvement. Next, I wanna provide a few tips on how to take or receive feedback. Dr. Shimby talks about how we often go through the stages of grief when we receive feedback. For example, imagine that your attending tells you at the end of a shift that you only saw four patients and need to be more efficient. Your first reaction may be denial, and you might think, I definitely saw more than four patients. I don't know what he's talking about. Next, you might get angry and think, well, maybe if you hadn't been sitting down the entire shift, you could have helped out some. Then you might try to bargain by thinking, okay, maybe I only saw four patients, but they were all really complex and all required procedures, interpreters, and admission. Then you leave your shift feeling down about your performance. And then finally, you accept that you only saw four patients and that you could have been more efficient. Instead of going through the stages of grief when receiving feedback, we should try to take feedback with a growth mindset and choose the triple A's. I've definitely had a similar experience to exactly what you just described and had similar feelings of stages of grief when processing that feedback. Tell me more about the triple A's. The triple A's are acceptance, appreciation, and action. Before you go to ask for feedback, accept that you are likely going to hear about areas for improvement. We are all striving to be perfect on shift, but especially as new interns, we are going to have many areas for improvement early on. Be grateful and appreciate that someone is taking the time to provide you with concrete feedback on how to become a better intern. And lastly, take action on the feedback that person gave you. Don't let the feedback get you feeling down or depressed. Instead, allow the feedback to inspire you to read more about a certain topic or watch a video on performing a procedure more efficiently. If we approach feedback with a growth mindset, it will not be devastating to hear negative feedback and will allow us to become even better physicians. Ooh, I like that, a growth mindset. Yes, we are all trying to improve. I suspect even your attending is attempting to improve, perhaps at giving tangible feedback. So next time we go to ask for feedback or know we are going to receive feedback, remember the triple A's, acceptance, appreciation, and action. Now, let's transition and talk about burnout. 
Our goal in discussing this topic is to help our listeners to prioritize healthy habits early in residency so that we do not end up feeling burned out later along in our careers. Like other specialties, burnout in emergency medicine can start early, with studies showing that between 65 to 74% of residents of all levels meet criteria for it. So, we want to take the time to discuss what burnout is and how we can recognize and prevent it. Burnout is a state of emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion caused by excessive and prolonged stress. The three main areas of symptoms that are considered to be signs of burnout are exhaustion, cynicism about the work environment, and reduced performance at work. During medical school, I had the chance to take an elective called Compassion in Medicine, and we discussed the close association between compassion and burnout. As you could probably guess, when you are burned out, your ability to provide compassionate care decreases, which in turn leads to decreased patient satisfaction and outcomes. Since this elective, I've created a personal strategy to help me recognize when I'm feeling any symptoms of burnout and a self-care plan to help prevent me from experiencing these symptoms. I want to share my strategy, but I encourage you to develop a personal plan that best suits your needs. I hear the word burnout so often, but sometimes it's hard to really get a concrete idea of when I should be concerned about myself or my co-residents, and it's hard to know if what I'm experiencing is burnout or if I just had a really hard shift and I'm tired. I'd love to hear more about your recognition plan first, Dr. Folk. My strategy starts with doing what I call a mental check every day on the way to work. I ask myself a few questions. Am I feeling motivated or demotivated? Am I feeling a sense of self-accomplishment or self-doubt? Do I have a positive outlook on the day or am I feeling cynical and pessimistic? When I take the time to ask myself these questions, I'm able to better gauge my overall mood. In the past, I've had a tendency to ignore these emotions, and I feel that a daily mental check has helped me to be honest with myself and actually recognize and address my emotions instead of ignoring them. That's a great recognition strategy. If I notice that I'm consistently demotivated, cynical, and pessimistic, it's important to develop a realistic action plan to address those feelings. An action plan should be unique to you and manageable given your busy schedule. Dr. Folk, could you provide an example of your personal burnout prevention plan? I'll share what works for me. However, remember effective strategies will be different for everyone. For me, a great way to prevent stress is to keep an accurate planner. On Sunday night of each week, I schedule when I'm going to fit in time for myself and my family that week. I plan when I'm going to work out, when date night with my husband will be, and when I'm going to see my co-residents. Importantly, I ensure that these activities are reasonable given my work and sleep schedules. Generally, I try to plan 30 minutes each day to do something for myself. Some days, this means going to hot yoga. Other days, it means taking my dog for a hike or going on a date with my husband. Seeing my schedule organized each week allows me to ensure I have some time set aside for myself and reduces stress about my workload. This puts me in the state of mind where I'm able to most effectively care for my patients. Debriefing after tough encounters with someone that I trust, like you, Dr. Durba, and finishing all of my documentation at the hospital so that I can leave work at work is also effective for me. I have learned that it is totally okay and oftentimes vital to my well-being to say no sometimes when others ask me to add on more tasks to my already busy schedule. This can mean saying no to a new research project, and other times it means saying no to hanging out with friends. In order for me to prioritize what's most important to me and my family's well-being, I will have to say no, and that is totally okay. Saying no can be so hard, but an upper-level resident recently reminded me that we're in residency now. We're here. We made it. And the most important thing now is learning how to be a good doctor. If you have passion for an extra project and that fuels rather than drains you, then do it. But we're busy, our time is valuable, and we should be honest with ourselves and our mentors and not sign up for projects for the sake of boosting our CVs. For the other strategies you mentioned, exercise in particular helps me turn the physical feelings of stress 
that physiologic response that comes with the emotion and thought process of stress, into energy for a run, yoga, or a day at the climbing gym, rather than allowing it to perpetuate and build upon itself on the next stressful shift or sleepless day. That makes me feel physically better, which then also has a positive effect on my emotions and mood. The tips we've mentioned are what works for us to help us maintain our well-being. And for you, it might be scheduling time to do an extra long walk with your dog, play video games, bake, or binge watch your favorite TV show. Debriefing with you, Dr. Folk, has also been so important to my well-being, and that point is something I especially want to highlight. Self-care is important in maintaining my mental health and improving my mood, but self-care can't fix everything. The most essential aspect of identifying and getting out of a downward spiral is being surrounded by a support network of people who will turn towards you and offer you support when they see that you are struggling. Talking about a difficult shift to spouses, friends, or family can be helpful, but there's also something uniquely therapeutic about talking to someone who has the shared experience of residency with you. Many of us will feel tired and drained after a hard shift or a challenging off-service month. Many aspects of our training are a season, and seasons pass. Throughout it all, your co-residents are your greatest allies and your most important safety and support network, and you should emphasize supporting each other through all of the highs and lows of residency. Residency is a uniquely challenging time, and supporting and getting support in return from co-residents will help us thrive rather than just survive. I hope everyone listening will take the time to reflect on their individual burnout recognition and prevention strategy because our mental health is so important, and prioritizing self-care allows us to best care for our patients. It is normal to feel drained and emotionally exhausted at times, but it is crucial to figure out how we are going to deal with these emotions so that they do not accumulate over the next several years. If someone is burned out, no amount of self-care will cure that, and it can be hard for that person themselves to recognize that. Some people might not have a strong support network, and those are the people that most need someone. That is why checking in with and mutually supporting your co-residents is so important to all of our well-being and success. These are such important points, but let's not give the impression that a few simple steps solve all problems. Clearly, your system works for you, but it also takes your effort, your practice, and your time. Self-care or these strategies are not simply hanging out with friends. While we here at CMC do love to do that too. What you're saying seems to be more structured and active. You are absolutely right, Dr. Derba. It does take effort, but the energy we put into staying healthy will certainly be worth it in the end. Now, I see myself in this moment saying that self-care and mental health is important, and that's nice, but I know myself, and I know that I can get bullheaded and ignore my mental health. And even though residency is hard, I can tend to act like I'm tougher and that it's a sign of weakness to even talk about this stuff. We are all tough, or we wouldn't be here. And there is no weakness in prioritizing mental health and knowing when to reach out for help. It's also not easy to just set your schedule and follow it. It takes effort and energy. Some weeks are harder than others. And sometimes your schedule completely falls apart. And you have to be okay with giving yourself some grace. But the mere act of prioritizing your emotional and mental health is a tremendous step toward a healthier perspective on your career and life. I guess an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Especially when the cure for burnout is often not easily prescribed. So just like we should focus and spend time on our physical health, we should also exercise our emotional and mental health. Excellent concept. Now, let's wrap up this episode so we can get physically and emotionally stronger. That works well within our growth mindset, right? Right. (laughs) Let's briefly summarize the important points from this episode. Next time you see a complex adult or pediatric patient, take a deep breath. Don't get overwhelmed by their past medical history. Remember that complex patients still can have common diagnoses like UTIs and pneumonia, and that you can approach these patients the same way you approach other patients. When you are giving feedback to a medical student, remember the importance of creating psychological safety, using a non-judgmental tone and demeanor, and use the phrase, 
I'm giving you this feedback because I have very high expectations and I know you can meet them to set the stage prior to giving your specific and timely feedback. The next time you receive feedback, remember the triple A's. Acceptance, that you'll be receiving constructive feedback. Appreciate that the person giving you feedback is taking the time to help you become a better doctor and take action immediately to act on the feedback on your next shift. Lastly, create a burnout prevention plan that is manageable and works best for you. Remember that some weeks will be easier than others to stick to this plan, and that is okay. Coming up with a long-term prevention plan now will help pave the way for a successful career in the future. That's all we've got for you today. Thanks for tuning in for another episode at the J. Lee Garvey Studio at Carolina's Medical Center. Keep working hard, residents, and we'll be back for some more intern nuggets soon. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. Seems he out. <laughs> nope, I couldn't do it. <laughs> Destiny's like glamour shot, and I'm like, I have never been, nor will I ever be glamorous. <laughs> He's gonna be such a good candidate. <laughs> That's so okay. cute.